Against the Odds, AHC's inaugural podcast series featuring the true stories of real-life bands of brothers who exhibited unparalleled bravery, solidarity, and endurance on the battlefield to come out on top in a fight against impossible odds, reliving battles from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq. These are the true stories of the harsh realities of war, as told by the veterans who survived to tell. I'm your host, Shane Bowler, and this week we present The Magnificent Bastards of Dai Do. On April 30th, 1968, weeks after the Tet Offensive, the NVA launched yet another surprise attack against an American outpost. At stake are thousands of lives and the future of the war in Vietnam. All that stands in their way are less than 700 Marines against some 10,000 NVA. North Vietnamese were throwing every capability they could at us. They were fighting for their life and we were fighting for our life. I was thrown into a cauldron and I reacted to one desperate situation after another. It was close in, kill it. It was close in, kill it. I saw one Marine club an NBA soldier to the ground with an empty rifle. Snatch up that soldier's AK-47, kill him and two more with the same rifle. These were the finest young Marines that you could ever witness. This is their story. It was a battle to the death on both sides of that fight. You fought to the death. Against the odds, the magnificent bastards of Daido. By February of 1968, the surprise Tet Offensive has failed militarily for North Vietnam. But the scale and audacity of the attacks shock America and shatters any illusion of a promised light at the end of the tunnel. Tet had proven that while the NVA could not defeat the U.S. militarily, they no longer needed to. With America's public support for the war teetering, if they could mount yet another bold attack, then they might turn the American public decisively against the war. Their next critical target will be the spark that ignites the epic battle of Daido. William Wild Bill Weiss, commanding officer, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. Daido lay on the north bank of the Beauvue Quaviet Rivers and it occupied a critical location because it was close, very close to the major combat support base that the Marines had, actually uh, that America had in the northern part of South Vietnam. Sprawling and vulnerable, the Crucial Depot provides ammo, supplies, and medical support to thousands of American troops fighting in the northern tier of South Vietnam making it a prize target for the NVA. It sits just across the Cuvier River from a small group of deserted hamlets all surrounding the main village of Dai Do. Under the blind eye of South Vietnamese ARVN forces, the Viet Cong have secretly built a massive maze of bunkers and gun positions pointed directly at Dong Ha combat base. Connected through interlocking tunnels, 
The entire fortress is covered in a thick layer of lush vegetation that conceals its deadly inhabitants. On the morning of April 30th, after weeks of operational secrecy, the NVA makes their first mistake, giving away their presence. Overanxious NVA gunner at Unlock opens up on a Navy riverboat, killing one sailor and wounding others. For NVA commanders, it is an unbelievable and critical blunder. Now remember, at the start of this battle, I didn't know who was in there, but I had this feeling in my gut. 10 a.m., Lieutenant Colonel Weiss sends Captain James Williams and 125 men of Hotel Company to investigate, along with 50 men of Foxtrot. Waiting for them is a massive force of NVA. As Hotel Company move cautiously through the outskirts of Daido, gunfire erupts. So, whoa, wait a minute. More enemy in there than we expected. This wasn't three or four men. This wasn't a rifle squad. This was a sizable force. We started putting plenty of fire on these two positions. Under fire, at 1 p.m., Hotel Company attacked Don Juan. After two hours of close-in killing, Hotel Company clears Dong Huan, a small hamlet just across the river from the U.S. base. The fight has left one-third of Hotel's Marines either killed or medevaced out. They have no idea of the true enemy's threat that they have stumbled onto. Confident his Marines can clear the rest of the villages, Lieutenant Colonel Weiss calls for an airlift of Golf Company positioned eight miles away at Ni Ha to support his 80 men of Foxtrot. The enemy took that position under fire with a tremendous amount of artillery. To try to lift them out by helicopters would have been suicide. At 4 p.m., Fox Company attacks Daido. With no chance of Golf Company arriving in time, and fearing further delays will give his enemy time to reorganize, Lieutenant Colonel Weiss, unaware of the massive force awaiting him at Daido, sends in the two platoons of Foxtrot, and they immediately come under heavy fire. The enemy force was much, much too strong. That left the Foxtrot company out into the open area exposed to fire. So they were in a precarious position. I was beginning to worry now uh, because I had expended all my resources. My regimental commander shows up in a small boat and says, hey, we gotta continue the attack. I said, with what? With Hotel and Foxtrot tied down outside Daido, 
the regimental commander rushes in yet another marine unit, Bravo Company, with a hundred men mounted on amphibious tractors. Within minutes, they are pinned down by an onslaught of overwhelming small arms, machine gun, mortar, rocket, and artillery fire that quickly stalls their attack on the outskirts of the village. By 5 p.m., what had begun as a routine search-and-destroy mission has escalated into a protracted slugfest engaging some 250 Marines spread across multiple battlefields fighting an enemy that appears to be everywhere. I was thrown into a cauldron and I reacted to one desperate situation after another. I knew that we had been duped somehow. I was slowly untying it piece by piece and every time I got untying one piece, I saw a more difficult puzzle to solve. The fog of war has concealed from Lieutenant Colonel Weiss and his 250 Marines a horrific secret. Hidden in a fortress of bunkers are a staggering 10,000 North Vietnamese soldiers. Their critical mission, to launch yet another Tet that will prove to the American public their resolve and willingness to kill America's sons indefinitely. All that stands in their way is a small band of Marine brothers whose courage, skill, and audacity must meet head-on a superbly trained and motivated enemy that outnumber them 40 to 1. The little-known battle of Dai Do is fast becoming one of the most significant and epic battles of the entire Vietnam War. William Weiss. From the start of that battle, I was flying by the seat of my pants. We never knew what the size of the enemy force was. We didn't know how well they were fortified, and we didn't have any idea of their major objective. I depended upon the capabilities and, the, and my faith in the men that I was serving with. Vic Taylor, platoon leader, hotel company. When the battle started, I was aboard the ship, USS Iwo Jima. PA system sounded medevacs inbound. It's kind of a chilling message when you know what it means. And we saw there were Marines of our own company, hotel company. We didn't have body bags in those days. They just covered with ponchos or the best we could do for them. I think you can imagine my feeling at the moment. I was in the wrong place. I needed to be ashore. And so that's where I went. I jumped on a helicopter and headed back in. After 24 hours without sleep, the exhausted men of Golf Company finally arrive on the battlefield. They have brought with them two desperately needed tanks, led by the battle-hardened Jay Vargas. He has no idea of the veracity of the coming engagement that would earn him the Medal of Honor. Lieutenant Colonel Weiss immediately prepares them for battle. We plastered that place with supporting arms. The two platoons that initially started the assault were pinned down shortly after entering the village of Dido. Vargas himself then led his reserve platoon through those two platoons and increased the penetration, and he and his three platoons actually 
cleaned out the whole area of Dido. However, just about the time they had finished their assault, they came under a counterattack. By this time, his company is whittled down. So I ordered him to form a tight perimeter, dig in, and hold on to what he had. I didn't want to commit hotel company. I saw it would be useless. The situation was really fairly desperate. At 4 p.m., sitting 20 miles away, the 180 men of Echo Company finally get the call to join their brothers in the desperate fight at Daido. Steve Wilson, radio operator, 3rd Platoon, Echo Company. Things changed rapidly, and how they changed made us feel much different. Jim Rogers, squad leader, Echo Company. People were excited. It was like their first date or something like that. They were eager to get into the battle. Things started to change emotionally inside of you. Nervousness, I was scared. I knew things were bad, and that came through the radio. James Livingston, commanding officer, Echo Company. Our brother Marines from the 2nd and 4th Marines were tied down, and we wanted to get in there and do what we could to help. We were ready to fight. The word came, saddle up. We grabbed as much as we could, oranges or apples, or shoved them in our pockets, and we started down the road. 6 p.m., Dido. With nighttime closing in, the few hundred exhausted Marines still have no idea they are attacking some 10,000 NVA and delaying their enemy's secret plans to bring America to its knees. The ferocious fighting has done little to dampen the spirit of the young Marines, but the coming storm will push them to the breaking point in a desperate struggle against an enemy that may yet turn the tables on the war in Vietnam. Within the midst of this critical situation, 100 men of Echo Company, under the command of their skipper, Captain Jim Livingston, finally arrive at the battlefield. They are ordered to take Dai Do in the hopes of breaking the back of the enemy. Failure could mean the loss of the entire battalion, leaving nothing to stop the NVA's plan to overrun Dong Ha. The bloody marine assault will be one that none of them will ever forget. gets to be about 5.20, and I get a call from the skipper. And the command was, fix bayonets. And I literally took the handset, and I looked at it, and I went, okay. I could hear the guys behind me reaching in, grabbing their bayonets, and hooking them up. 180 bayonets clicking across that morning and hearing that sound was a very, very significant sort of feeling for each one of those Marines. Your intensity as Marine all changed. Everything inside of you changed. Your blood started pumping right away.
when I said, move out, they moved out across an open rice paddy, you know, with no cover and concealment. And it's just bare chest going up against a hell of bullets. These were the finest young Marines that you could ever witness. The whole northern perimeter lit up. They started firing machine guns. They started firing rockets. They started firing RPGs. Two assault platoons got within just a few yards and just got totally bogged down because of the significance of the casualties. We were taking casualties big time. There were 100 bunkers there occupied by North Vietnamese and they were shooting right directly at us. Most of the young Marines who got killed in that particular episode of the battle were shot in the head. That's how close we were to them. It was a battle to the death on both sides of that fight. You fought to the death. As the battle began to bog down, I knew it was one opportunity we had to penetrate that significant bunker locations. We launched the reserve platoons attacked on a very narrow front. And we were able to penetrate that line of bunkers. And that was the key to it. You had to get a penetration point. You had to break through. The North Vietnamese were good fighters, but they were focused in one direction across that rice paddy. They could react to the left and to the right. And we rolled them up big time. Meanwhile, over to the right of Echo Company, Vargas, they only had about 60 men left. They jumped out of their holes and they started fighting. They fought like hell, and together, Echo and Golf retook Dido, and we had that village again. Echo Company never lost a fight, and they were not going to lose that fight. And they won that fight decisively. But the consequences were significant in terms of loss of Echo Company lives and capability. When it was all over, out of the 180, there were only about 35 Marines that were not either killed or wounded in Echo. In order to keep the pressure on the enemy, I had ordered Hotel Company to move around the left flank of Echo Company and attack the next village, which was Din To. I was watching our Marines as I waited along with them, ready for the next fight. We'd been up in that country for almost three months. They just finished the battle for Dong Wan and sent one third of their number off killed or wounded. And they knew exactly what was ahead of them. We were gonna attack another fortified position, 75 of us this time. They knew the NVA would fight. They knew they'd have to be rooted out one by one. And although, in the end, we'd be in their positions, walking over their dead bodies, there'd be a lot less than 75 of us around for the celebration. They knew all that, 
And when we stepped out of that little clump of woods that was our attack position, looked across the paddies at our objective, there wasn't one second's hesitation. As we closed on the village, within a couple of hundred yards, the NBA opened fire. Every time they shot, somebody went down. We broke into a run. As soon as we hit the first line of trenches, the fortifications were unbelievable. We'd seen fortification before, but never seen anything this extensive. It flashed through my mind at this point, how long have these guys been here? And about that time, the enemy counterattacked. We took about a half a dozen casualties immediately up front, and we stalled. We began to hear them to our flanks, almost to our rear. It was a bad spot. The NVA were ready. They were reaching for our belt. And when they came again, it was clear we were gonna have a desperate, a desperate situation. The urgency of hotel companies' radio transmissions is recognized by fellow Marines. One of them is Captain Jim Livingston. He has only 30 men left from almost 200 who assaulted Daido that morning. But Marines take care of their own. James Livingston. Echo had not received any orders whatsoever to be involved in this fight. I made the decision at that point. Echo had to get re-engaged because I was very concerned about the hotel company and maybe the fact they may be in a position to be wiped out. I told my Marines to pack up. We're going to assist hotel company. We ran forward under intense fire. I told Scotty Prescott, Echo's coming. I could hear Prescott, yeah, he's shouting, yeah, and he yelled back and forth, Echo's coming, Echo's coming. And I looked around, and behind us, I saw Captain Livingston, and I have a couple dozen Marines coming at us through the smoke and the dust. They never looked better. I, I could have kissed them. Everybody in that battalion knew Jim Livingston, and they knew what a fighter he was, and boy, they figured, if Livingston's coming, we're okay. The North Vietnamese were throwing every capability they could at us. They were fighting for their life, and we were fighting for our life. They were still moving when the next counterattack came. It seemed like all these NBA soldiers coming back, there was NBA all over the place. I saw one Marine club an NBA soldier to the ground with an empty rifle, snatch up that soldier's AK-47, kill him and two more with the same rifle. It was close in, kill it. It was close in, kill it. The enemy came in with such numbers that they overwhelmed them, and they were in a position where Livingston then got hit. 
I got hit with one of the uh, weapons that were utilized to shoot down airplanes. Uh, North Vietnamese turned it on me and shot me and my radio operator killed him. Finally, I told the battalion commander, I'm down. I don't think we're, we're going to survive out here just because of the sheer numbers of the threat against us. I ordered them to bring the wounded with them, but to pull back tactically. Skipper told us, move back to the edge of Dido. He had been wounded, and we started to pull him out. But he says, get everybody else first. My order was, bring the wounded, leave the dead. Let's get out of here. By 3 p.m. on May 3rd, the five ravaged companies of the 2-4 have fought their way into the village of Daido. Lieutenant Colonel Weiss, still unaware of the massive horde they are up against, prepares his men for yet another push in the hope that reinforcements will arrive soon. But for the weary Marines who have already paid dearly for their tenacity, the worst is yet to come. My regimental commander called me and said, we got to keep the pressure on. And I said, with what? I said, we're out. I said, we've run out of steam. I just lost two of my best company commanders. Third one was killed, and the others aren't in very good shape, and uh, I'm not feeling too good myself at this point. Two miles outside of Daido. He said, Weiss, I'll tell you what, I got some help for you. He said, we've got an Arvin battalion, mechanized battalion. They move with armor protection, and they have a lot of firepower. They'll support your attack. They will attack with you. Well, that was the plan. It didn't work out that way. The South Vietnamese ARVN Mechanized Battalion has been rushed in to provide support with what is now just 250 Marines, dangerously low on ammunition, men, and supplies. Desperate to continue their attack, the Marines have little choice but to accept the ARVN into the fold, even though they are known to be unreliable under heavy combat conditions. With the firepower of the assisting South Vietnamese, the Marines prepare for a bold and risky new attack plan. 250 ARVN troops and tank support will move up the west side of a narrow stream and provide protective fire ahead of the 120 men of Gulf and Foxtrot companies. Moving by foot, the Marines will attempt to push the NVA out of the strongholds and into the open where they can be destroyed by ARVN tanks. Timing of the attacks is critical. Without the protection and firepower of the ARVN armor, the Marines will be exposed to the full brunt of enemy gunfire. At 4 p.m., the ARVN begins their assault. Golf and Foxtrot attack. As we move forward, first we heard the uh, fire from our friendlies on the right, and then the heavy fire from the tank stopped. Then we started to experience automatic fire from the left, and it was hitting in amongst us. And at first we thought, that's our Arvin, they're uh, not staying far enough ahead of us. But when I put my binoculars over on the left, I looked over there, and by God, they were enemy soldiers. 
and moving in large numbers from our left flank. Where in the hell was the Arvin, I thought. I called the liaison officer on the radio, no answer. They were not there. The South Vietnamese Arvin troops the Marines have been forced to rely on, either from fear of the NVA or by corrupt Arvin officers in alliance with the NVA, have abandoned the Marines, exposing them to blistering gunfire from three different locations. Hundreds of fresh, well-armed North Vietnamese soldiers swarm in to surround the 125 Marines. I happened to be right alongside Vargas and his radio operator. I said, Vargas, we gotta pull back. There's no way we can hold on here. Bring in our wounded with us and we'll come back and get our dead later. Vargas called in artillery right on top of us. We started to move back. As I was about to get out of the trench, I got hit on the side and I was unable to move. Captain Vargas, wounded three times in the last three days and for the fifth time in three months, grabs Lieutenant Colonel Weiss by his flak jacket and drags him to safety. He will go back in several times to rescue his wounded Marines. In their haste to kill the vulnerable Marines, the NVA have inadvertently exposed themselves. Fixed wing and helicopter gunships respond immediately to the rare sight of so many NVA out in the open and move in for the kill. The Arvin's failure to support leaves the Marines bloodied and reduced in numbers, but furious and still wanting to fight. They dig in and form a thin defensive line. They knew there were not enough of them to hold back a full-force NVA attack, but they were determined to make the NVA pay dearly when they came. They braced themselves for a fight to the death. The next morning, when they sent patrols out to see what was in front of them, the enemy had pulled out completely. They had moved out, we assume, back into the demilitarized zone. The NBA had just disappeared. They were gone. The Battle of Daido ends as mysteriously as it had begun. But the answers and the reality of just how close America had come to yet another Tet was quickly lost to the fog of war. It would take another 40 years for the facts to be known. In post-war interviews with senior NVA leaders, the Marines learned they had indeed fought against some 10,000 men of the 320th NVA Division. Believing that their strategic intentions had been discovered by the relentless Marines, the NVA retreated north during the night, abandoning their grand plan of another Tet to bring America to its knees. Lost at the time was the story of an understrength battalion of U.S. Marines, who against impossible odds, attacked and fought an NVA division to a standstill and retreat, defended Dong Ha combat base, saving countless lives, and spread the United States a strategic disaster. Captains Jim Livingston and Jay Vargas would be awarded the Medal of Honor for their heroic leadership. 
Lieutenant Colonel William Weiss is awarded the Navy Cross. But on May 4, 1968, all that mattered to the men that saved Dai Do were the men who had given everything. A reporter on that final day captures the special bond of the men who would become known in marine legend as the Magnificent Bastards of Dai Do. Sir, how are you feeling? feel pretty good. Uh, how would you feel if you were commander of the best battalion in the world, huh? We hurt them pretty bad, but then uh, they hurt us a little too. But you, you gotta give a little to get a little, huh? Did you worry at all that you weren't going to get out? None of us thought we were. I, did, I, didn't, I can't believe we made it. It was hard. I was scared, so was everybody else, and we didn't think we could make it because we knew they were behind us and we couldn't run because every time we stood up, those machine guns opened up on us. Is this the worst fighting you've ever seen? That's the first I've ever seen, yes. How has it been? Well, we went into it uh, gung-ho, and uh, uh, we pushed them back a little ways. Uh, fighting got pretty rough, and uh, we pulled back. Did any of your friends not make it? That's affirmative. Uh, a lot of my friends didn't make it. James Livingston. The thing that I reflect on as being a recipient of the Medal of Honor is to remember all those young Marines who didn't come home, didn't have a chance to be fathers and grandfathers. This whole episode in my life inspired me to be a better Marine because I wanted to represent the values that they represented. I wear the award for them, and in their spirit, and in their kindness and commitment to the Marine Corps and to their country. Vic Taylor. What does the, the battle for Dido mean to us that fought it? I will say probably the overriding feeling for those of us who led Marines there is our undying respect and humility for their loyalty, their integrity, their bravery, their unselfishness, and their willingness to go well beyond what was expected of them. William Wild Bill Weiss. I believe that the men that fought there at Dido fought as well as Marines ever fought in their history. I'm proud to have been, and still am, one magnificent bastard. This podcast was produced by the American Heroes Channel. Join us again next week for Against the Odds, The Death Ridges of Peleliu. The story of the Pacific assault by Marines on the Japanese in September of 1944, and the battle that raged for more than two months. I'm your host, Shane Bowler. Thank you for listening.